Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. I'm talking today with Matthew Lang, an artist and photographer who worked as a studio assistant for Sarah Charlesworth. After Sarah's unexpected death in 2013, Matt took over the day-to-day management of her estate, which includes the continued printing of unfulfilled editions, the replacement of damaged artworks, and the translation from defunct and non-archival printing processes into more stable digital techniques and materials. I'm looking forward to chatting with Matt about the craftsmanship behind producing Sarah's work, both during her lifetime and posthumously. Um, so I want to give a little background about you to kind of um, introduce you. Uh, you have a BFA from SUNY Buffalo and an MFA in photography, video, and related media from SVA. That's right. In 2011. <laughs> <laughs> been, been looking um, at my information. Yes. Correct me if any of this is not <laughs> okay, correct. Okay. Um, and currently, you're a lecturer at SUNY New York City College of Technology. CUNY. CUNY. Yeah, CUNY. Not SUNY, which Not is SUNY. state. State university. Okay. I'm the city university. Gotcha. Yeah. And you're also the studio manager for the estate of Sarah Charlesworth. Yes. Um, and you work for her for how many years? I, I worked for her for three, and I've worked as the estate manager, um, for the, as a studio manager for six Almost. Okay. She passed away in 2013? Yep. Yeah, in okay. June of 2013. And I sort of became the the manager of the estate when that occurred. Can you can you talk a little bit about like how you started working for her and the kind of transition mm-hmm. into her estate and a bit about her work? Yeah. So um, Sarah was, uh, was an instructor at SVA in the MFA photography. Um, I guess there's other MFA photography that's sort of like the oldest. So that's MFA photo as Uh the the sort of shorthand. There's been other sort of like digital media or something like that that have emerged since then. But um, so Sarah was an instructor in the um, SVA photo video related media for 20 some years. Um, 
and um, something that she started, I guess, sort of like as a mid-career artist and continued to do. And um, she would uh, regularly hire her assistants from within the program because it was sort of, you know, um, artists that she could sort of... uh, uh, constant pool of yeah. talent. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Constant pool of talent and like sort of, um, you know, constant pool. It was like if you were signed up for Sarah's class, you were probably, you know, at some level like looking to work, make work that is kind of uh, influenced by her. Um, were you a fan of hers when you, did you know her work when you first yeah. started taking her classes? She, she was really honestly one of the reasons why I, um, why I registered, why I applied to uh, the SVA program. I had actually, there was one point in particular that I, I can pinpoint the day when I was looking at grad schools and I went to a show at the Met, um, which was just like sort of selections from the photo collection I can't, I can't remember what it's called. I've looked it up since then to kind of recall, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, and in this show, there was work by Liz Deschen and by Sarah Charlesworth. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, it was like these are, you know, I knew their work before that, but just seeing them kind of at that show, um, I was on the fence about applying to SVA. And once I saw that, it, I kind of just said yeah okay yeah i want to work with yeah yeah with both of them it was like this is these are the artists that i want to work with these are the artists who i really feel strongly about their work and if i have a chance to study with them amazing so were you her studio assistant during school or like after you graduated it was during it was um right when um so she was a second year uh crit uh, instructor that was always her role there um and she would you she'd be your instructor for the entire year nice um, yeah it was really great it was an amazing she was she was really incredible at it um but very early on it was like the first or second day of class um it was another student in the program had recommended me. I interviewed her. Like, she interviewed with me like after class mm-hmm. and, um, and then like hired me right away. So I awesome. was her assistant and student at the same time, um, which you can imagine like how much everybody else in the class liked that. <laughs> it, was, um, uh, it, it was really like a, an amazing time though. It was really yeah. incredible. Um, and then I continued to be her assistant after finishing school, mm-hmm. um, and then she actually brought me in as a teaching assistant. Oh, nice! When she started at uh, at Princeton, so um, awesome. I was sort of like w- went from being her student and <laughs> um, yeah. I and mean, assistant. that's very generous because it's so hard to get those first teaching experience out of grad school. That's like yeah. a very supportive. Yeah, thing. absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that like it was we had a very. Um, I think we had a very good working relationship from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she had had she had worked with people sometimes that were just technically uh, minded that were might have been great assistants when it came to like photoshopping and when it came to sort of like okay here's what I need can you execute this? But for me, I think from the beginning it was like I was more on the wavelength of how she thought conceptually. About, conceptually, yeah. exactly. I, I was I was definitely sort of more. Um, on the same page. Um, so it was also really special in that when she was making work, you know, over time, she started, you know, asking me for like my opinions on which images I liked and things like that, which was, um, of course, like really so exciting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like a real, um, 
it, it was it was a real pressure actually, but also really yeah. um, like flattering, and it was an honor to like, kind of uh, think in those terms with her. Cool. Yeah. Um, could you maybe talk a little about her main bodies of work um, and the kind of difference between each technically? Because I know she yeah. does a she has a pretty wide range both of series um i've heard approximately 20 distinct series seems about right um and she kind of has interest in like appropriation of images and deconstruction and the photograph is like a sculptural object and there's a lot going on there but i'm wondering if you could kind of pair those things with different kinds of um techniques of printing yeah so um so sarah's earliest work that she kind of uh, acknowledged as her real quote unquote artwork, mm-hmm. um, is the modern history series, um, which was, uh, newspapers, their, their photostat prints, um, which was a process that, um, was, uh, a, a direct exposure. Um, it's almost like kind of a mix between a photo and, and a photocopy, Okay. Um, and it, it was a sort of paper that made a direct positive, um, and then you would process it and get sort of one image from the photograph. It's almost okay. like a Polaroid that doesn't have the chemicals built into it. Gotcha. Um, and so she would, um, she would, with the series Modern History, she would take newspapers, block out all of the text. And leaving only the images on the mastheads. And she would create these uh, photostat prints of them, mm-hmm. um, which would always sort of be, it was always a selection of newspapers bound by what she called the control in the, in, in the early uh, stages of, of doing the project. Um, so there would always be sort of one, it might be every newspaper that reproduced an image of a world leader Oh, so there were like rules for... Exactly. The controls are essentially the rules, right? So um, there's one, every newspaper that ran photographs of an eclipse that crossed uh, North America. Gotcha. Um, And, or else it would be every, um, the front page of the Herald Tribune every day for a month. Um, So, and then the work is between some of them are just two newspapers, but it's more like 20, 30. The biggest one is 45 wow. um, photographic prints of the newspapers with the text removed. Was there like, was there rules formally, like in how aesthetically they ended up? Was it like they can't be bigger than this? They're always reproduced the same size as okay. the original newspaper. Um, sorry, this is becoming like a very roundabout description of how the series works. No, it's my fault. Um, but so the, um, it's, it's always the number of newspapers that meet the criteria, the rule or the control Mm -hmm. reproduced the same size as the original newspaper. Um, always a black and white print, um, in this photostat process, which she then later used other, it, 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 became a defunct process so she replaced it it seems like she uses a lot of defunct processes (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so i was gonna ask is photo or are the materials for photostat still available no no they are not okay um and so something that happened is that with this series and with other later series when the materials became unavailable or the sort of the, the methods for reproducing the images became unavailable she would 
make a decision to um, fill addition prints with whatever process um, could could replace it. So she would adapt the original defunct process into something that she felt was a yeah an equal right and um, she, product. So for for the modern history series, she found that um, that a, a chromogenic print was the closest approximation, mm-hmm. um, which is just a sort of standard uh, color. Uh, printing process um it looks very similar um you can you really can't tell the difference just looking at them and the chromogenic prints are actually much more stable which is a problem in photography (laughs) yeah exactly right so um you know the 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 the, uh photostat prints do not last um they 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 degrade relatively quickly Mm -hmm. um and they really shouldn't be shown in a museum. Yeah, are they shown or do they ask you for a, an exhibition copy? Yeah, they're almost never shown. Um, yeah. Even in Sarah's lifetime, she would insist on making a print that was not even necessarily the exhibition pro- copy. In some cases, she destroyed the original print that she made in 1978 and replaced it with chromogenic prints. Um, she was really not uh, a strict adherent to the sort of the the original copy or anything like that. Uh-huh. She um, so uh, none of the degrading was quote unquote part of the piece. She wanted ex- them frozen. Exactly. They should. They, she always wanted something to look um, exactly as she had sort of planned it, and it was more important to her that it looked that way than it was something that she printed in 1978. Gotcha. Right. And the same, the same kind of um, adaptation happened with Cibachrome work yes, too. Exactly. So, um, so she started working um, in the the modern history series. Is always newspapers reproduced the same size mm-hmm. as the original with the text removed. She did. She worked on that series from 1977 through 79, um, and then in 1980 uh, with the st- with the series stills. She started working in a larger format um, using black and white prints, um, but much, much bigger, so like six and a half feet tall, oh, wow. um, which in, by 1980 standards was enormous for a photograph. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just like every show at Ligs Werner now, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like back then it was huge. Yeah, I mean, where was she, where was she making those prints? Was she working with a lab back then? or She would... Um, the lab that everybody went to was called Modern Age. Um, that was the place to get things printed, but they were more of like a commercial lab. So this this paper was designed more for um, displays for a store. You know, it would be something that um, you, you'd print to like, you know, put up like on a billboard in Times Square or something. Um, that, they, I mean, that makes sense with the picture generation. Exactly, yeah. Kind of ethos, trajectory. Right. Totally, yeah. So Sarah and, and Barbara Kruger and anybody who was printing these big black and white prints was using something that was really more a commercial medium. Um, was she? Or were they around when you was that lab around when you started working with her? No, no, no that was. Um, no. I'm not sure when they when they uh, <laughs> ended, but um, they were no longer around. Um, there's still some of the same labs um i've i've managed to put together like a little bit of a history of (laughs) of new york city (laughs) photography printing labs exactly yeah it's been a lot of the gaps in that have been sort of like filled in Um, yeah i mean did she um when when you were working with her 
and kind of before that, did she ever print anything herself or was she always working with Always working labs. With, with labs, yes. yeah. She was always sort of, um, she, she was going back and doing a little bit of black and white film processing and printing, mm-hmm. but, you know, for, for teaching purposes. Gotcha. Um, she was not, like, you know, she was not interested in working with color prints. Yeah. I mean, I think that relationship in between a photographer and the printers, um, I mean, we've discussed this before, is kind of mirrors like a very tr- traditional relationship between like a printmaker and a paint, an artist. And yeah. there's this kind of step between um, conceptualizing and through production that's very collaborative. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's something that um, the photographer relies on. Mm-hmm. It's, aside from a very few... Uh, sort of purists who still, and I think especially kind of like in in the art world, there are a few. It's almost become like the hobbyists who work in the dark room. Yeah, you know, where like the sort of the the vast vast majority of photographers are are not sort of getting their hands in the chemicals, rolling their sleeves up. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a, I guess there's probably an expense thing too to kind of buy the equipment to to print these six foot massive things. You, it's like a big investment unless that's what you're going to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's just easier to work with that. And I think for an artist like Sarah, she was switching between different methods. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the very early days, you know, she, she would have, she wouldn't even work the camera in most of, in most of the early work, she would take it to a copy lab, uh-huh. um, which would normally be making things for like magazines for, for creating plates for. Oh, so like, they, they put it on a copy stand and shoot it for exa- her. Exactly. Okay. So she would essentially do the kind of collage part of it, whether it's blocking off the text of the newspaper or in later series, cutting out the images. And then she would have it photographed. Would she give them instructions about how to photograph it? Yes, v- like very Written precise. Instructions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's cool. actually. Do you have like an archive of those oh, like, yeah, with yeah, her yeah. estate? Yeah, and the the, um, the they're called mechanicals or else mm-hmm. paste ups. Um, and those, uh, you know, you take the, essentially like the little collage component and, um, she would always lay a, a sheet of glassine over it and use a, a China pencil to kind of, wow. and they're, they're really beautiful actually. They're, they're, some of them have degraded really badly mm-hmm. because it's like rubber cement. Um, but they're, they're, otherwise they're these really beautiful objects that, um, you know, she would create this thing and bring it wow. to the lab to have it photographed. Have you ever had to, um recreate the shooting of a piece all the way back to that level or is it just the printing from it's usually the printing we we did when when sarah was still around um that second series that she the the series that she kind of marked as like the second in her kind of mature real work um the stills um she produced the definitive artist proof set in 2012 while I was working for her and it was it was this funny thing where she had these and those ones are all torn out so you see the torn edges uh-huh. where she she pulled it from a press photo or from a newspaper and she would tear it out to the proportions of the final print um, and there was this problem where she would tear it out and then um, you know stick it down to whatever color background she wanted to have around around the edges of mm-hmm. it and then bring it to a lab to have it photographed. Um, 
she couldn't find somebody to photograph it in, mm-hmm. in 2012. You know, we, we called up every lab in the city and said, do you have a copy camera? We want to make an 8x10 negative of, the, <laughs> yeah, of, of, this thing. of this thing, and nobody could do it. Um, so it ended up um, having to be scanned. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it, and, um, and, and that was mostly because it, that should actually be noted that um, those things were scanned because the original negatives might have degraded or something like that. She gotcha. wasn't making any new work at that point mm-hmm. for the series. It was all things that were already existing. But depending on the state of the negative, some of the negatives have ter- had turned. So, so she would then to- scan it directly from the original can I call it a collage? <laughs> like yeah, the thing well, that the you know, object, the thing that happened is that the, the object, it is, uh, some form of collage, not in those cases, both the object and the original negative would be scanned. And it was some kind of like, like meshing of the two. Yeah. yeah. Cause just, I imagine, I mean, she's using found printed material and colored paper, both of which are not archival right, <laughs> and yeah. change a lot exactly in their existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah right so it was it was kind of just like restoring it to what the original negative uh-huh. looked like and before before she passed away did this kind of um process of stopping the degradation of earlier work did she take take it all through to the like digital stage or was that a process that was ongoing it's a process that was ongoing absolutely you know when she passed away it was completely unexpected um you know she she i she had an aneurysm um i had seen her like three days before um and she was young right she's 66 yeah Yeah. exactly um i had been like emailing her like the night before and it Mm. was just like um it, it was really out of nowhere um, so yeah, it was, she, she was thinking about some of these things. Um, so it, it's a good thing that she was, um, so that the groundwork was laid. Yeah. Some kind of, you had some kind of template of the process of bringing these things. Exactly. Artworks to. Which is really critical because it, we, we follow that template we know how she intended to do these things that are no longer possible to do. And I'm not really, I'm not making anything up. Everything Mm -hmm. is sort of exactly how she laid it out to be done. Yeah. Um, And, and that's something that I have to follow strictly. um, Of course. Just kind of keeping with what her work is. Yeah. And do you, um, I imagine there's moments where, um, you know, that there's like very strict rules, both that she set out and aesthetically and that you, you probably self-impose of like to keep um, kind of a checks and balances on the system of bringing her work out of um, a system that's degrading and into a digital archival yeah, yeah, yeah. system. I'm sure there's moments when there's like a, a bit of a debate, like should we do this or should we do that? Like you bounce that, those kind of conversations with her, Children yep. or yeah, 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 yeah and her exactly. gallery, yeah, her, her grown children. Sort of <laughs> that <laughs> always has to sort of be like. <laughs> I should say. Her I know it's it's always a funny thing. I'm, I'm like you know yeah her kids, but it's like her kids are not kids. Yeah, <laughs> you know so it's like um, they're they're my colleagues. They're, yeah. they're uh, <laughs> you know I, I I work with them regularly. Um, they're very involved in the estate, um, and yeah. it, it's it's amazing that they are. Um, there's rarely debates about what needs to be done to mm-hmm. execute something 
um, we're generally on all completely on the same page when we say, okay, here's, you know, how Sarah did it. And this is how we're going to make the next print in, in the edition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, that's generally very clear cut, very yeah. straightforward. Um, there have been actually very few cases where we've had like a real dilemma about, you know, what do we do with a work? Is it possible to create it in a, in another medium? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something, and Sarah would occupied a very interesting place with the way she made her pictures and the way she thought about them too. I think this is like a really important piece of how she worked and that she was coming directly from a conceptualist way of thinking, um, but then applying it to photographic media. So you've got this like strange place that on one hand, it's almost like the sort of like the soloette wall wall drawing, mm-hmm. right? Where here's the instructions. This is exactly yeah, it's how it's very should, precise. Yeah, the, yeah. Here's the precise set of instructions. And if you follow these, this is what it will look like. Yeah. Right. And in a sense, that's how Sarah was thinking about the work. But then there are these elements like it has to be this color of red. Mm-hmm. And you know, the object in the center of the image has to be the particular size and it has to be on a certain paper and the frame has to be a certain dimension but I think she was always thinking about the work more on those terms of here's the object that is kind of the manifestation of an idea and she never cared if it was an object that was made in 1982 or if it was in like 2012 gotcha it was like if as long as it was the sort of the perfect embodiment of that concept Mm -hmm. that she was trying to convey that was what really mattered um, you know, of course, once she's gone and the estate is dealing with like the differences between like a lifetime print and like, you know, something that she signed or something she didn't, it's, you know, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And we, we actually, I think we're a lot more precious with her objects now or with all, you know, with all the objects. Yeah. She was very sort of like, oh, it's not right. Just get rid of it. <laughs> and I'll make another one. Was there moments where she's like, it's not precisely the embodiment of this idea it is not the artwork like just check yeah. it wow. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah yeah she would take it back and say i'm gonna send that to me i'll destroy it and create another copy of it um yeah so she was and it was really important to her that this is sort of this is how it's intended to look if it doesn't look that way then it's no it's, longer it's not mine <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. right wow and that was she kind of honed that through the relationship with you and the labs and kind of them knowing the kind of um, aesthetic that she was going for. Yeah. Um, and she, if they didn't know, then she, she was not afraid to tell them. <laughs> was, um, yeah. It was, uh, she, she was very, um, the stories about how difficult she was to work with are, are sort of funny, but it was, and I, I got to see some of it firsthand. Um, but it was also, it was always, really interesting and very I, I thought it was very instructive for me to see it because she would walk in and say this is not yeah right you know I need you to redo this and like what would make it what would make it not pass the test? um it very often um the sort of uh, the tonalities of the prints uh-huh. for example if it was too light too dark um did she have a set that she would bring in that she considered like the artist proof like the perfect Sometimes she did. She didn't okay. always have that. Um, sometimes she did, sometimes not. Um, 
there were things that she was sort of going by off of her head. You know, there, 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 she had other reference points that were sometimes like uh, very funny. Um, there's one piece that should be Tiffany blue. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the instruction for everything. And it's just, but she would go in and say like, this is Tiffany blue. It has to look like that. We tried to make a print once using an actual sample uh-huh. of, of Tiffany blue. And it was completely wrong. <laughs> Cause it of was, the translation <laughs> through the camera, true Tiffany blue didn't look N- no, no, it was, um, well, I think the color has actually changed a little bit over time. Oh, I think funny. the Tiffany has actually changed it since 1987 when the work was originally <laughs> made. But it's also, you know, the thing that was funny is it was always the sense of Tiffany blue more than the actual exact like Pantone color yeah. or anything like that. Um, yeah, and, like I bet if you ask someone, what is a Home Depot orange? Right. Everyone would point to a slightly different shade of orange because it's what they think of. Yeah. When they think of Home Depot Orange. Exactly. And that sort of, that Tiffany Blue was what Sarah envisioned Tiffany Blue. And, you know, her, her but it was enough that, like, the printer could get it, you know, and that they, uh-huh. could, they could be on the same page with that. Yeah, I imagine you have to work a long time with a printer to be able to communicate. Yeah, exactly. Your... Yeah, but what labs do do you still work with, like that still survive from her? We, we still work with Lamont Photographics, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we do a little bit. We do the large format black and white with Griffin editions, um, and that's a complete continuation. This is one of the things that's really cool about what I do. It makes it way less scary. Is that um, Sarah would go to Lamont. Um, and then you know have have things printed, mounted, and then she'd bring them to to East Frames, um, and now and I would sort of like be with her while she did yeah. that, and now um, I just sort of do it and. Um, and is it the same people working at those it's places? The same printer. That's it's awesome. Actually same, exact same printer, um, and what, what's really cool. Um, I don't want to like. I can't. I sh- I should give like crazy like shout out to east frames because they're amazing yeah, that's fine. but i also don't want to like have too many people going there cause <laughs> 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 i can bleep out the name for okay. you <laughs> i don't i don't know I, I think it's i think it's fine they're they're amazing they're incredible framers they're um uh what they do is is they're, they're the only ones we trust the color yeah. match uh, have you um have you ever had to be like this isn't exacting enough um, there's only been a f- few very, um, very minor instances, um, where, where that's actually happened. Yeah. Um, they've been really pretty, um, they've been incredible. Um, I think that we're at a point where most of what we do is the subjective part is largely gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah had more issues when she was sort of devising what the series would look like. Yeah. Um, she was like testing to, to be able to figure out what the final piece or series was going to be. And now you're just filling. Yeah. Um, finishing editions that weren't fully printed or replacing damaged. Exactly. Copies. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, I know that there was some, some instances, um, when I worked for Sarah and she, uh, completed the available light series, which was her last series. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, there's a very particular soft white that she uses for the frames. Right. And working that out and getting just the perfect color was, um, was, trying at certain points. Yeah. Um, Do you now keep like a sample library so you can go 
back to them? Uh, no, we actually don't. And, and um, it does, it can vary just a little bit. If the paper stock that the print is made on varies a little bit, uh, you know, we're talking extremely minor mm-hmm. uh, variances. But if it does, then the framers also match that. Gotcha. They adapt to the paper. I- exactly. With right. the paper now, this is this is a very technical question, which I don't uh-huh. know that much about printing. But like, uh-huh. would a paper stock change because the company no longer makes the one that was being used before, or is there like deviations, like yarn between bolts? Of yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's something that um, I mean. I remember learning this back in like inter, in, in undergrad level mm-hmm. photography. That if you were in the middle of printing one print and you opened up another box of paper, or if you opened up like another roll of paper, you had to sort of restart your tests. Oh wow! Um, I think it's get, gotten to be a lot more exact with digital, but there uh-huh. can be variations from from one. Um, you know, just one roll the, to the next, um, it can vary. Is there a difference in machines? Like if you, within the lab, if they ran on different machines, do you think it would be different? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely, um, you know, w- what happens now is it's all sort of very carefully regulated, whether you have a LightJet printer. LightJet is actually a brand name, and there's a couple different brands of uh, digital output uh, enlargers, essentially. You know, they're sort of, um, th- they actually have a, a pixel grid that exposes the paper as it passes through um, and then processes it, um, you know, in another machine, like down the hall. Um, so they... they and, and what is that? Pro- is that digital Cibachrome? What is For that? any any digital, it's okay. a, it can be done Cibachrome, uh, which is a direct positive. It can be done on chromogenic, which is a negative to positive process. It can be done on black and white paper. Um, and more and more labs are working with black and white light jet now too. So okay. it's um. So it's, just for like a layman's terms, yeah, yeah, yeah. aka me. Yeah. <laughs> so this machine shoots light directly onto sensitive paper using a pixel-sized grid of light exactly lasers exactly but not yep. lasers just light um i think they are technically lasers okay, i, I cool. think they are um I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure they are and i mean that keeps it like very focused and it actually introduces a whole other set of problems whereas a black and white enlarger it's a bulb that then is focused through a series of different lenses mm-hmm. But the light bounces around a lot more. Because there's more space between the source and the paper. Yeah, exactly. Um, And and it's a less sort of precise light source, too. It's just kind of like, you know, you're working with, you know, uh, a traditional, like, uh, you know, I guess it's a uh, it's a tungsten ball, but it's a incandescent, right? I think so. It's, I mean, it's like a regular like light bulb that would be in a room, and then it's focused through a glass lens, like a yeah. camera lens. I mean, I imagine there's such thing as being too precise. Well, that's exactly. I remember when like HD HD TV came out and. All my yeah. like favorite crappy TV shows suddenly were in super high resolution, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, right. "Oh, this looks terrible! Yeah. I don't, I don't want to see pores on people." Like, and no, that's something that happens with a light jet printer. Um, so, so most labs have some kind of um, processing that they add to make mm. it look um, to to soften it a little bit. Um, but then it's also um, if it's something that's from a black and white negative, you'll also run. 
a set of um, sort of filters in Photoshop to to make it look like a darkroom print. Gotcha. And these these are like universal techniques for this digitization of processes that are either you can't do it because the materials aren't available or for yeah. archival. Yeah, exactly. And I think that they're, um, they, they require some tweaking. Um, you know, there's something, this is actually something that, um, that I worked with Sarah. Um, she had started to need to do this to, to a good deal of her work. To tweak yeah. some of the in-place processes. Yeah, in 2012 when I was working for her, there was, um, nobody was printing any kind of color from an enlarger. The lab, the big labs in New York weren't doing that. Um, they had stopped around like 2002 or three, and that had actually forced Sarah to start uh, working in a way that was um, uh, that was more sort of digitally minded. And I think it did influence the way she was making work uh, for you know for that 2002 or three onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was already sort of familiar with that and needing to put things into a digital uh, format. Was she upset about, was she, did that frustrate her? Was she upset about that? Or was she kind of like, these were unstable processes anyway and we're going the way of more exacting? I think she was, um, she was really good with technology. I have to say she, she was uh, very, uh, sometimes, um, I don't think she was, it all resistant to it. I think mm-hmm. she knew that things were changing, and I think she was actually intrigued when photo, photographic technologies changed. I didn't get very far in describing all the different series, but um, she went from the modern history pieces um, to the stills and then in photography, and then the first color works are the objects of desire, mm-hmm. which are all photographed by others essentially she would have she would bring it to a copy lab and have all she would have the images made um in 1992 93 she did the natural magic series i love that series it's so good (laughs) um but those are all in studio those are all things that she set up and photographed working the camera creating scenes in front of it um so she she went from being sort of like um an a conceptual artist who made photographic prints. I mean, you, I've heard Did, interviews with her, and you've mentioned that she was hesitant to call herself or adamant against calling herself a photographer. Is that the yeah. moment when she was okay with it, or was she never okay with it? it, it no, it shifted. She definitely later, later on, she, okay. she changed her tune quite a bit, and she was definitely a photographer later on. Uh, and it was this interesting sort of... She was making photographic prints through the 80s, um, but she never considered herself a photographer. Mm-hmm. She had worked as a photographer. She was um, through the at the end of college and in the sort of early seventies. She was going out as a photographer, a and, commercial and, photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What exactly. kind of stuff was she? She she did a lot of like sort of stock photo kind of things where she would go out and shoot and then like sell the images um, to, to I love hearing small about publications. Artists that are my heroes, what their yeah. job was before they became. You know, she 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 only she did it on and off. It mm-hmm. was never like a real like hardcore full time like heavy duty kind of commercial thing. Um, but she had done it. She had sold work. She had um, you know made money as a photographer. Um, I, the the kind of the biggest commercial project she did and the last commercial project she did was the opening credits for Saturday Night Live in 1985. Shut up. 
That's um, amazing. I've actually never even seen them. It's it's impossible to find them. I mean, I'm sure it's possible to find yeah. them. It's a weird season where I think like I think it's the season where Lauren Michaels wasn't the producer. And it's like generally considered like one of like the really bad seasons of the show. <laughs> but they needed new um, credits. But they needed new credits, and um, and so it's a, a different. A studio photographer came in and did like all the like celebrities that were hosting and mm-hmm. the cast and things like that. Um, but Sarah like went out on the streets and got these like sort of vibrant like New York City like fire trucks leaving the station and like, yeah, and there was um, like I remember there was maybe like scribbles on some of the photography a it, little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's like that kind of thing. And then she she um, she made these like collages awesome. that were the the title sequence. So um, and that was the last commercial job she ever did. Um, so it's kind of like a fitting end to that career, I guess. <laughs> The Natural Magic series, I think, is really one of the things that's very cool about it is that she, after having other people make the pictures for her for the entire for an entire uh-huh. decade, the first thing she does are these wildly complicated studio setups. <laughs> it's a challenge um, to set yourself. Yeah, exactly. And and she really, um, you know, she when she decided she was going to use the camera and, and be a photographer, she really went for it. Um, yeah. And, and, and then so she continued along those lines. Um, around 2002, um, she, the lab essentially told her, we're going to have to scan your, your chromes, mm-hmm. um, your exposures to print from from now on and when that happened um she started um that that the series uh, neverland that she completed around that time um is the first to also employ photoshop and sort of use Interesting. um <coughs> excuse me so she this is the first to employ photoshop and she started to um you know use uh, Photoshop filters to like color the background, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so it, it didn't have to be as pure of, of a sort of studio shot anymore. Um, she started to manipulate the images. Um, so she really embraced it when, when she knew she had to do it instead of trying to like... Yeah, um, I mean, for someone who's so um, precise to, to have something like Photoshop where you can tweak things to a level of like infinite... Yeah. Um, exactingness. She must have been really excited about that. Yeah. I mean, I think she was daunted because she didn't know how to use it. <laughs> um, that's where you came in. That's where I came <laughs> in. That's, I, was, I, I wasn't the first one to come in and do it, but um, I was one of the, the people who helped her to, to do that part of it. Um, I have a question that I ask everyone on the podcast, but I'm yeah. going to ask it a little differently for you. I ask okay. people what their favorite tool is. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in what your favorite tool was when you worked with Sarah oh. and when you've been in um, charge of her estate, if there's a difference in the tool. Interesting. <laughs> um, I think it, there definitely is. Um, I mean, the, the thing that comes to mind when, um, when Sarah was around and when I was, uh, when I was her assistant... Um, is uh it was uh, i'm trying to think the model number that i don't have I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank but um when sarah was around i think my favorite tool was uh, a carousel slide projector if that can be a tool I, I think oh yeah i think it is i was using it for performances and that's and i, I had i actually had an array of them mm-hmm. um and that was sort of um 
I, w- I was building work from that, essentially. Um, that was sort of... Like layering images from multiple projectors? Yeah. Cool. Uh, layering images. I would do things where I would project onto surfaces that changed. I was doing performances where um, they generally involved several projectors, usually a digital projector with a PowerPoint or video, mm-hmm. um, some flip charts. It was a lot of... Things like that. Um, And I was also kind of, you know, it was a point where I had been working digitally and was kind of like reconnecting with this analog media Mm -hmm. and sort of bridging, uh, bridging the divide between the two or making some attempt to... Um, which is totally unrelated for, to anything that I was doing for Sarah, you know, and it was like, um, well, sometimes the thing you spend your day doing, you don't want to do on your own work when you go home. Yeah. And, and I think my own work at that time, it was like, it was very chaotic and very sort of, I was doing these performances that were, um, sort of like cross between, uh, using multimedia, sort of analog technology and creating something that was sort of halfway between like a sales pitch and like, uh, like a sermon in a church and like a punk show. Like that was kind of, and this (laughs) is the plummet machine project. Yeah. Yeah. These were my, um, my, uh, investigations into the order and nature of the plummet machine. What I think is my favorite tool now. Yes. Because I didn't get to that. Um, I was thinking about this one and, um, it's a similar like analog technology, but the the Nikon FM2 is my new favorite thing. That's, Why? Um, it's a thirty five millimeter film camera. Um, it is the fastest mechanical shutter ever. Oh. Um, it's a camera that is. Um, it's not like a particularly high end uh, camera. It takes a battery for the light meter, mm-hmm. but it can fire at extremely high speeds and like record really high quality images in a completely mechanical way. Um, cool. And it's like one of the last and what most about, precise to do um, that. Can you describe the difference between recording an image in a completely mechanical way and like a really high megapixel camera? Like, what is yeah. the difference? Well, I mean, in, uh, in the resulting picture, even on a film camera, most later model film cameras had an electromechanical shutter. Mm-hmm. So there's actually an electric impulse that um, that controls the speed and, and um, you know, releases the shutter. Uh, this camera is just springs and gears. Wow. Um, and, you know, this is something that I think, um, and I think especially if you look at Sarah's last series, Available Light, um, when you think about just the nature of the medium of photography, um, it's it's magic. It's like there's something really um, you're you're. It's a tool. It's a device that registers light automatically, and there's something really profound in that. Yeah, it's kind of like the closest thing to alchemy we've ever found. Um, and so for this like device that is just kind of like springs and gears. And a piece of glass that it can that it can do that that it can it's, it's it's what a plant does it's photosynthesis right it's something that we have no idea how that really works 
um, it, from a from a kind of bigger picture of life and and um, you know the the existence of the planet. Um, but yeah, it's the driving force. <laughs> yeah, you're right, exactly yeah. right. It's like photosynthesis runs right. it all. <laughs> existence as we know it would not be here at all if it weren't yeah. for that. And you know, the camera is like this device that somehow takes a piece of that in a way that no human being ever can. Thank you so much to Matt for speaking with us about Sarah's work. If listeners would like to see the series and artworks that we mentioned, they can go to her gallery's website at www.paulacoopergallery.com, or they can visit Sarah's own website, which can be found at www.sarahcharlesworth.net. A final credit to the Bryce Arisla Baglia Quartet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com. 